Uh, Lord Jesus, we just want to walk with you this week. We want to be close by your side and shaped by what you do and what you say. So help us to draw close to your heart and see things as you see them. That's what we're asking for. And it's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. Thus it begins. Holy week. We have crossed quite a threshold this morning. Um, We're now, as I said before, we're trying to walk really closely beside Jesus. That is the point of this week. And the path that we call Holy Week, that we're treading on, is littered with enough pathos and hubris and irony to make any Greek tragedy blush in comparison. It's a very treacherous, unpredictable path this week, and it has plenty of human failure. And Palm Sunday, today, is that first step, stepping onto a path. The goal this week, and I said it last year, and I think I said it the year before, and I'll probably say it every year. The goal this week is to inhabit the Holy Week story. Inhabit the Holy Week story. So encounter each event in this last week of Jesus' earthly life as it unfolds in real time. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to keep pace with him at every step. So it's tempting Don't subvert the process and jump to Easter. Don't do it. We all have that urge. We all have that strong urge to rush to redemption and rush to resurrection. But if we do so, we bypass all the reasons that make the cross necessary. So inhabit the Holy Week story. Don't leapfrog over the hard stuff. Because if you do, I promise you, you'll miss out on the good stuff. The riches of Holy Week. A path which leads to the cross and beyond. We don't want to short circuit that. We want to see what God has in store. So inhabit the story that is Holy Week. That's my admonition to you. Beginning to end. How do you do that? You're probably wondering. That's great. Great idea. How do I do that? Well, there's the basics. You show up and you're present and you fully engage in the service. You do this. You show up to Monday, Thursday. You show up to Good Friday. You show up to Easter Sunday. That's a given. But let me give you some more specifics beyond that. How do you inhabit the Holy Week story? Two different ways. First, look for yourself in the characters and the crowds that you see this week. So imagine, what does it mean to be an enemy of Jesus? What does that mean? Or what does it mean to be a struggling disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be sort of a curious, intrigued onlooker? What's going on? What is all this about? Uh, Imagine what it might be to be an almost disciple who admires Jesus from a safe distance but still remains a bit aloof. There are just so many vantage points. I think God gives us so many entry points to enter this story. So that God-given imagination you have, engage it. Who are you in the Holy Week story? Who do you identify with and why? And what is it like as that character? What's it like to have this Messiah King violate your expectations? Because Jesus has a very different agenda than anyone else in the story this week. Us included. So find yourself in the characters. But don't get lost. This is the other point. Don't get lost in the crowd. Look for Jesus and imagine what Holy Week was like for him. He's the main character, right? So look for him and imagine what this week was like for him. Step into his sandals, right? We're not just trying to journey beside Jesus. We're trying to see and encounter and experience Holy Week through his eyes. So look for, your, look for yourself in the characters and certainly look, imagine what was it like for Jesus to do this week? I'm convinced that if we do this, if we inhabit the Holy Week story, 
you'll see that there are two perspectives and these two perspectives are at odds with each other. They're in tension with each other. There's this great divide between here's God's plan for salvation. That's being played out in Holy Week. What else is there? Here's humanity's plan for rescue. They are competing narratives at times. They're at war. There's who we want Jesus to be and there's who Jesus actually is. God's ways aren't our ways and that's where the great rub lies. So, look for yourself in the characters. Imagine what it must have been like for Jesus and observe those two ways. The Jesus that we want versus the Jesus who he is. Mark 11, 1 through 11. And I'm going to call this the triumphal approach because really, only towards the end of that passage does Jesus actually arrive in Jerusalem. It's more about leading up to that. But regardless... His arrival in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, it's in all four Gospels, meaning it is so critical. Critical, critical. We can't miss it. Okay? They all four want us to catch it. Jesus and his disciples, they make their approach to Jerusalem. They're part of hundreds of other Galilean pilgrims making their way to the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're going to celebrate God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Okay? They do it every year. And this is probably the biggest feast of all the annual feasts in the Jewish calendar. Now, Galileans, where Jesus grew up, they were, mm, let's just say they were of a different stripe than their uh, comparatively sophisticated and cosmopolitan brethren in Jerusalem. Even though they shared a common faith, they were viewed with a certain disdain. They were kind of tolerated more than they were welcomed in the capital city. They were the poor backwards country folk from this obscure small farming village that was very separate and very different from the busy cosmopolitan life of Jerusalem. And yet Galilee, those are Jesus's roots. That's where he grew up. So he is the Christ of the margins and he is the Christ from the margins. And his eyes are set upon Jerusalem, the capital city. Now, as I said before, um, this really shouldn't be called the triumphal entry, at least not according to Mark. Uh, the triumphal approach, that's kind of how I'm going to refer to it. That's more accurate. It's more about the approach than the landing. Mark tells us that Jesus and company drew near to Jerusalem. I'm just going to go with it. Via Bethphage, Bethany, Mount of Olives. You get those three details. And for example, uh, Bethphage, is, it's essentially a little separate suburb that's about two miles out from Jerusalem. So what Mark's doing is he's describing them inching closer to Jerusalem. Now, why does he give us all this geography? Is it just narrative color? No, it's not. It's great foreshadowing. Certain prophecies suggested that the Messiah would come via the Mount of Olives. So a millennia earlier, King David journeyed back to Jerusalem to do, guess what? Reclaim his kingdom and reclaim his kingship via, guess where? Want to take a guess? The Mount of Olives. That's right, 2 Samuel 15. So David's return to the holy city foreshadows Jesus' own arrival into Jerusalem. Now, in fact, David is the one who established Jerusalem. David founded it as the capital. His son, King Solomon, you might recall, built the first temple there. Further cemented it as this crowning jewel of the chosen people of God. That's why the Old Testament refers to it as the city of David. Okay? And why certain psalms connect uh, Jerusalem with the king. They're just interconnected. So the Messiah is going to be royalty. Okay? It's, he's going to come from David's lineage, which Jesus does. 
And the Jewish people expect their Messiah to rule from Jerusalem, that ancient city of kings. Jesus knows this. And that's why he's coming to claim his rightful rule as the king of kings in Jerusalem. And not just the king of the Jews. There's a lot more he has going on than they anticipate. So alongside his fellow pilgrims, Jesus makes his approach to Jerusalem. Who's in the crowd? Well, you've got the disciples. You've got other Galilean pilgrims from prior episodes in Mark. Just to kind of backtrack without telling you too much. uh, They've been journeying with Jesus since Jericho. This is back where the healing of Bartimaeus happened, right? Remember he was blind, called out to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. Son of David being a messianic title. And Jesus heals him. So this is the crowd that's been with Jesus. They've seen him heal Bartimaeus. So this crowd, as far as we can tell, is actually in Jesus' corner for the most part. They've yet to mingle or clash with the Jerusalem skeptics and critics. Now, you might have been taught that the crowd shouting Hosanna in the triumphal entry is the same crowd that shouts crucify him days later. Well, according to Mark, evidently not. This crowd evidently is composed of, I would say, mostly the believers, the true believers, common people who've seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. In fact, heal Bartimaeus, they'd seen his miracles. And as they close in on Jerusalem, they're gathering momentum and and they're merging with fellow pilgrims as they go. Quite the buzz. That's the picture you need to have in your head. So this is a royal procession unlike any other. So the crowd is heralding, uh, here comes the king, to put it in modern language. Uh, the disciples probably served, I hate to put it this way, but I just, I'm going to put it in modern language. They're somewhat, feels like they're serving as cheerleaders, probably encouraging the crowd. One commentator says, this is carefully choreographed street theater. I do think it is uh, one of those prophetic acts that the prophets often do. It's a sacred sacramental performance art. Okay. Jesus wants us to see this. And there's so much symbolism here. Mark doesn't want us to miss even one straight detail. So let's look at why Jesus does what he does here. Firstly, Jesus makes a specific point of riding in on a donkey. Okay? Mark tells us he sent some disciples ahead uh, to procure a donkey, right? Now, why did the owner let them take it? I don't really know. There's all sorts of speculation about uh, maybe there's some sort of cultural ride of kings or rabbis to sort of requisition an animal. They say the Lord needs it, and the person says, okay, well enough. Jesus doesn't own a donkey. Jesus doesn't own much of anything. And part of this serves to remind us that Jesus is poor. Ryle has this to say, when Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, he was in a borrowed boat. When he rode into the holy city, he was on a borrowed beast. When he was buried, he was in a borrowed tomb. So if anything, this reminds us of his poverty. But I don't think that's the main point. But I do think we're to note it. After all those days of walking to Jerusalem, all those days, why get on a donkey two miles shy of your destination? Why do that? Why take the time and effort? He had already walked all the way from Galilee, which, by the way, is a multiple day journey. There's no real need to ride the last two. And there's no mention of, ah, Jesus just got tired and said, ah, get me a donkey. Why did he do this? Well, Jesus wants people to take notice. When he gets on that donkey, imagine everyone's walking. He gets on that donkey, he becomes all the more visible. He's raised up as he enters Jerusalem. He wants to be noticed. Why is that? There's a lot of Old Testament in what Jesus is doing. David, 
rode a donkey to enter Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 16. That donkey was used at the coronation of Solomon. Those are two kings in a row. Hmm. There is a kingly association between riding that donkey with riding that donkey. It's in Israel's cultural consciousness. It's in their scriptures. I wonder if anyone caught this as Jesus did this. So he's riding in on a donkey, and this shows he is claiming his kingship. He's owning it. He's from the line of David. He's royalty. And he's not only claiming kingship and reign, he's telling us he's a certain kind of king. And this is what we really need to catch. If you were a military conqueror, a mighty king, you came in on a war horse. Critical symbol. But there's no war horse here. Not at all. There's not an ounce of worldly might. The donkey was a symbol of, guess what? Peace. Jesus comes in where some expected a war horse, and he's on a symbol of peace. He's on a donkey. He comes into Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace. Uh, That's pretty darn subversive, folks, given the expectations. To enter Jerusalem at a time when the Jews wanted nothing more than to cast off oppressive Roman rule. Their Messiah instead comes in peace. He comes to the place of his imminent death, the home of many of his enemies, those whose judgment he would bear, and he comes as how? The Prince of Peace. What kind of Messiah King is this? Does anyone notice he's on a donkey? And take notice of why that is. This is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9 through 13. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. He's triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Folks, this is a different kind of king. Different kind of king. So the donkey, tremendously symbolic. Jesus is preaching with this. As he rides in, they throw their clothes, their branches on the ground. That's why we had those palm branches this morning, right? This is their version of rolling out the red carpet. This is just how you did it back then. Paving the way for this king with small, your own small sacrifices. Maybe you take your cloak off, you lay that down, you put these palm branches down. And when you do this, this is an act of homage and submission to his authority. Right? So it's pretty clear as we move into the Holy Week story, Many thought Jesus was some sort of deliverer, some sort of Messiah, this King Jesus. And there's recognition here. As they do this, they lay down their clothes and wave the branches. Jesus, you're the man. Okay? Otherwise, why shout that messianic line, Hosanna to the son of David? Okay? There's some acknowledgement that this is the Messiah. They believe and hope he is the one. And they wave their palm branches. Those are the symbols of victory. That's what we just did. Probably not in like a ticker tape parade to welcoming home soldiers from World War II. You ever see those pictures? Just incredible. So the crowd sees him as some sort of Messiah king. Well, what kind of king do they believe him to be exactly? Do they, are they hoping he's an upstart revolutionary? Are they hoping he's a political or military Messiah? We have to walk out the week to find out. So Jesus rides in on a donkey. They lay their clothes And they wave their palm branches and they're singing and shouting portions of Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Psalm 118 is a part of a group of psalms called the Hallel. These were psalms that you sang on Passover. Psalms that you sang on the Feast of Tabernacles. So when Jesus and the disciples finished the Last Supper, the Passover... They most likely sang or chanted 
Psalm 118. It was a messianic psalm, and it celebrated God's plan to save through his Messiah. And that word Hosanna, it's a great exclamation. It just means, uh, Lord, save now, or Lord, help. It's very imperative. It's very direct. So this Hosanna marks their refrain. It's the beginning and the end of the section. So this part that we get from Psalm 118 is their heart cry for Messiah. Lord, save. Lord, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It wasn't an uncommon song for pilgrims to sing together as they made their journey to Jerusalem. So I'm going to ask you a question. See if you've been listening. It's easy. It's, I mean, it's a lot, but I'm going, to throw, I'm going to throw it to you anyway. Is it safe to assume that the crowd believes or perceives Jesus as some sort of Messiah King? Safe to assume? Yes, I get it. I like that. She forgave me a poem, Wayne. I appreciate that. Yes. Now, why do I say some sort of Messiah King? Well, the short answer is human nature. Let me expand on that. Tell you why. So the standard refrain from Psalm 118, you would say, is, is Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118, 26. Now, Jews would say this to each other as they came close to the temple. It's a way of greeting each other. Maybe similar to how we pass the peace. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You exchange that back and forth. But in our story today, they didn't stop there. There's a little more to the passage. If you read all of Mark's 11 verses, they added this. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So they elaborate on it. They expand upon Psalm 118 by adding what I would say. This has a certain political or certain nationalistic flair to it. This tells us something about their expectations. This tells us something about who they want Jesus to be, what kind of king they want. And that begs the more important question. What kind of Jesus, is, what kind of king is Jesus in reality? That's the heart of Holy Week. And that's still a relevant question for us, not just back then, always relevant. So if we can see this scene from afar, just kind of back up from it. Because I've tried to just kind of take you in it and immerse us in it. If we can kind of back up from it. This entire scene in Mark 11, this is a really different kind of royal procession uh, based off what would be normative. This is a pauper's procession. Viewed from the outside, it's a rally led by a poor, charismatic revolutionary and his followers. There's no chariot. There's no horses. There's no soldiers. There's no security detail for Jesus. There's no earthly glory. Jesus doesn't even have a saddle. Do you notice that? They have to throw their clothes over the... The donkey, so he has something to ride upon. This all fits with the scripture's description of Jesus as humble and meek. There's nothing remarkable in terms of his appearance uh, or his court's appearance for that matter. There's no regalia. There's no royal vestments. None of that. His royal entourage is common, everyday people. Which I love because that's still true of his church today. This is a Jesus of the margins, a Jesus from the margins, and a Jesus for the margins. Jesus, the junkyard king, the one who came to serve, not to be served. It all fits. Let me give you a modern picture. A little crude, but you'll get it. I think it does the job. Imagine uh, in our day and age, you go and find a used car lot somewhere here in Charlotte. You borrow a, a used 70s junker. Let's take that. Uh, you pile some of your supporters in it. You head down to downtown Charlotte. 
course, you adorn the car and do various things. And honking your horn, shouting, here comes the Messiah. It's about that odd. This is not a typical royal procession. It's just not. Jesus comes to us in ways that we would never plan and we would never choose. Always. What kind of king is this? Is he a king of political might? Is he going to brandish the sword and stomp on Rome, their oppressors? Or is he the king of religious reform? Is he going to whip the Sanhedrin into shape? Correct the uh, many abuses? You have to take the journey of Holy Week to find out. So we're going to watch Jesus like a hawk. We're going to stick by his side and watch what he does and what he says. So in this triumphal approach, Jesus goes fully public, okay? Completely intentional, utterly decisive on his part. This is not happenstance. He comes to his capital, to his temple, and to his father's house. Which, if you'll notice, that's the first stop in Jerusalem. He, he goes to the temple. Prior to this, Jesus has kept a relatively low profile. He's kept a lid on things. He bid, bid everyone to keep the Messianic secret. Don't tell anyone. It's not my time yet. But not anymore. <laughs> he has turned his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And Jesus is telling everyone, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. He is taking the spotlight. Intentionally. Knowing that that spotlight will follow him all the way to where? The cross. And he wants people to see that. That is the point. So Jesus has made this move beginning today. He's moved from these private or more secluded, instructed moments with the 12 or the inner circle or uh, the spiritually curious to a very public confrontation of the powers that be. He's going to take on the Sanhedrin. He's going to take on Rome. And he's going to take on the devil himself. When Jesus is in Jerusalem, there's always conflict. Always. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, this is his way of throwing down the gauntlet. He is going on the offensive. He's going to take the fight to them. And he's saying, now it's time. Now it's time for the Son of Man to be raised up. And he makes it clear. So Jesus is letting the world know, I'm the Messiah. Okay? Even when everyone's notions who think they know what the Messiah is, happen to be half right, misguided, or just dead wrong. This week, we're going to see Jesus make both war and peace. Both. Did he come to rescue his people from oppression? Yes, certainly he did. But Jesus had a mind to rescue them from far more than just their immediate circumstances. Right? His rescue plan is far more grand. This is not just about Roman oppression. That's small potatoes. He's going to shatter the yoke of sin and evil. So his rescue plan is grand. And it turns out, as we follow the story, it involves more than just his people. It's for the world. So Jesus doesn't show up in Jerusalem armed with this mighty fistful of imperialism, right? Like the Roman Empire. No, his conquest is entirely different. He's taking the sword to the world, the flesh, and the devil, the powers and principalities. That's where the war part comes in order to bring his peace to us. You see? War and peace. That donkey that he rides upon, I view it very differently than I used to. I think it's a Trojan horse. I think it's a Trojan horse that signifies Jesus' ransom of humanity from the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
Jesus brings war and peace and Holy Week, but it doesn't look how we think. What kind of king is this? It's always my question to Holy Week. What kind of king is this? Okay. In closing, Jesus' mission only accelerates from here on out. Okay? Holy Week, and I mean this literally, is a hellacious week. It's a runaway train that is bound for glory, but it moves at a very dizzying and a breakneck speed. So the question you need to ask yourself, are you willing to get on that train this morning? You're here, so that's a good sign. Will you follow Jesus this week? Will you follow him this week? And I think that is the question. Will you follow Jesus this week? Will you inhabit the Holy Week story and follow him this week? Because to see the real Jesus... You have to walk with him. I mean, this is a truth that we, it's just, it's like the law of gravity, right? To see the real Jesus, you have to walk with him. True two millennia ago, true now. So as I said earlier, if you leapfrog from today to Easter Sunday, skip out on Monday Thursday and Good Friday, the uncomfortable silence of Holy Saturday, you're going to cheat no one but yourself. I promise you. You'll miss out on the good stuff. So walk with Jesus this week. Follow him. Shadow him. See what kind of king he is. Might surprise you. He's inviting us, I'm convinced, to come and see this week. Follow me. Come and see. To inhabit his story, not as passive bystanders, but as his disciples.